Hi, my name is Jan Wilczek from dwolfsound.com. Welcome to Wolf Talk, a podcast about audio programming. In this podcast, you will learn how to build your career in programming or research related to audio, meet programmers and researchers from all around the world, and learn about the intricacies of sound. Hi everyone and welcome to the 16th episode of the Wolf Talk podcast. Today I have a very special guest for you. His name is Ian Hobson. He's currently a freelance audio programmer, but he previously worked at Ableton. And I think in the community, he's most well known for his love for Rust applied to audio programming. So we'll, of of course, discuss Rust, but we'll also talk on his background and on his work organization and how we can approach the freelancing space and also self-development space in terms of audio programming. Ian has done great audio developer conference talks and uh, I think some other talks in, 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 in different communities as well. And they are all available on YouTube. So if you're interested in Rust applied to audio programming, I highly encourage you to check out those. We personally met at the Audio Developer Conference 2022 and it was, these were the last minutes of the conference and I just grabbed him and I said, hey, is it you? <laughs> That's really talking uh, all about Rust in audio programming. And I said, it would be great if we could get in touch and record a podcast together. So I'm deeply thankful to uh, Ian that he agreed on doing this interview. As usual, the episode notes are available at dwolfsound.com. And this time you need to append talk 016. So it's dwolfsound.com slash talk 016. And if you would like to become someone like Ian, someone who is freelance audio programmer, someone who develops audio plugin, I have a resource just for you. It's my free audio plugin developer checklist that you can get at dwolfsound.com slash checklist. It lists every piece of knowledge that I believe is necessary to become a full-fledged audio programmer. And now, Ian Hobson. Hi, Ian. Thanks for agreeing on this interview. Could you introduce yourself to the audience? Hi, I'm Ian Hobson, and I'm a a software engineer working in Berlin as a consultant, a freelancer, and I've been working with various different uh, companies over the last few years, mainly uh, in the audio realm. Um, And before that, I was working uh, at Ableton, uh, where I was in the sound team for uh, many years uh, and ended up working as the technical uh, principle for DSP and devices, devices being the built-in instruments and audio effects that are packaged with, with Ableton Live. Um, and yeah, uh, well, I, I guess we can get into what happened before that later <laughs> in the show, but uh, yes, this is uh, uh, basically where I'm at. And thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. Uh, likewise. And exactly, uh, let's go back to the very beginning because I think 
almost everyone in this audio programming space starts with an interest in music. So I'd like to ask you, what were your your beginnings? Were you playing a musical instrument? Yeah, it, for me, it was um, music first before programming. Um, playing the piano from a young age and, and being surrounded by music and although although programming also came quite early for me so I was programming on a an old BBC uh, basic computer this 8-bit thing that was uh, popular in British schools in the 80s and I, I, I was uh, fortunate enough to have access to one of those and I was, I was uh, writing a lot of like basic programs uh, when I was quite young and then this this carried with me carried with me. Uh, when I went to university, I decided to study music technology. My interest was in uh, ele electronic music production, uh, sound design, like uh, music uh, as, as an art form. And while I was on, uh, studying for this course, I found that the, the programming module <laughs> was really where I shined. And I, I had a, a, like the, the most uh, like easy time, like w working in Maximus P, making all kinds of weird, like fun, uh, musical systems uh, and like a like a and visual systems uh, and using pure data too. So uh, PD and, and Maximus P were my main programming environments uh, during uni. And then after uni, found that uh, it made sense for me to uh, go into software engineering uh, for my career. And kind of self-taught, got into uh, enough uh, C plus plus to. Uh, get work as an engineer and then built this up over the years uh, I kind of became established uh, in on a, on a software engineering track but in my free time I was working on uh, audio plugins uh, for me and my friends we were like playing at club nights and DJing and uh, like wanting uh, interesting audio effects so I was, I was working on uh, different things basically for me and my mates and then uh, I kind of got to the point where I, I, I wanted that to be my day job and not, not just my, my hobby um, and so then in 2010 I uh, decided to go back to uh, uni and uh, study for a, a master's in DSP I, I figured like I really wanted to get deeper into uh, audio processing and I uh, really couldn't get my head around it in the like the small amount of time that I had outside of work so I figured I needed to take time out for full-time study and, and just really kind of immerse myself in it for a, a while. And so I did that, uh, yeah, 2010 to 2011. And uh, this was at Queen Mary. I, I went for a master's uh, in DSP there. And then after that, I decided that I wanted to uh, you know, go it back into industry. I decided not to continue uh, it, at Queen Mary, um, although it would be uh, a, a, a smart thing to do. <laughs> and friends of mine did that, but like it wasn't for me. And I, I also at that time kind of felt like a, a move to Berlin would be a, a good thing for me. I, I kind of was in London for a few years and I was quite attracted to uh, like Berlin as a city. Also the fact that they had a major uh, music software companies there, Ableton and Native Instruments in particular at the time were uh, the ones that I, I applied to and I heard back from Ableton and, and they gave me a job and so then I moved over uh, yeah, end of 2011 then spent yeah, eight years at Ableton and that's how I ended up here I'm still here <laughs> uh, and uh, can you maybe describe uh, what was your impression with the course at uh, Queen Mary's 
because I, I'm, I'm not sure if I had already someone uh, on the podcast who studied there. So could you maybe briefly describe what was your experience there? Oh, it, it was um, a, about 10 years into um, the Center for Digital Music. It's the, the center there uh, that was yeah, founded in 2001, I think it was, um, uh, by some uh, like very talented researchers. And they... Uh, created this environment for people to really study um, audio processing uh, for for um, the purposes of music and I, I was I was very drawn to that like uh, there were there were DSP courses around that were maybe more um, for telecommunications or for image processing but there was this real emphasis on music uh, there which I really liked uh, and appreciated um, And it was great. It was a, it was a good. It, so it was a one year master's course that I took. Like, and so I wasn't there for very long, um, but I learned a huge amount. It was like a, a, a fantastic year of just quite intensive learning and being surrounded by very smart people and uh, like thinking lots and lots about DSP and like the future of music and uh, what we could do with all of this stuff. And it was yeah, like uh, a, a, a really great time but very hard so my background uh, isn't in maths so it was there was a, a lot of study that I had to do like it was I remember after my first lecture just uh, like finding myself like uh, definitely at a shortfall so I, I went straight to the library and then I was like pulling out all the refresher books for you know all the maths you missed when you didn't study maths as an undergrad and um, so it, it was Yeah, hard, but really, really rewarding, really fun. Like, I loved it. And something about going back to university, like, a bit later on, after a few years, like, at work, like, you get to go back and uh, enjoy the library and uh, enjoy study and, and just be surrounded by learning again. Uh, maybe I didn't appreciate it as much the first time around. So, like, the second time around, I absolutely loved it. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing that you pushed through because uh, that's, that's actually, I, I hear it time and time again that people who study, you know, DSP uh, and come from the music background, they really have a hard time, you know, understanding numerical analysis, uh, algebra, algebra, and so on. So uh, it's it's really awesome that, that you were able to kind of, yeah, catch up, let me say. Yeah, that, that, that for me was why I needed the the time out to, to do it, so that I, I really could spend hours just <laughs> doing exercises from maths books, like by hand, like really trying to get my head into uh, the the... The basics because if, if you don't do that then it's always going to be a bit of a, a mystery um i don't know i, th I think uh, that i heard somewhere that it, you, you learn maths best with a with a pencil <laughs> and you know paper and it's um uh, i think that's probably true like you, you just have to really sit there and, and stare at it for a long time there aren't too many shortcuts Yeah, that's, that's a great tip for everyone listening who is also struggling with math. So uh, when you then started at, at Ableton, uh, can you uh, maybe describe what were your duties there? I know you already touched on this, but could you maybe expand on this and what was your experience uh, developing there? Um, yeah, well, I, I, my... Uh Uh, role was uh, application developer, so like a, a software engineer working on the the core application of Live um, at first. So at, to begin with, I was working in the Live team, working on uh, automation improvements for Live Nine uh, and uh, getting well. It's um, 
details of Ableton Live, but uh, automation into into the session view, where into session clips, where this was this was never possible before, and then also the introduction of uh, like curved automation segments, which was a, a big user wish for a long time. And then after that, uh, uh, moved into the sound team, and there we were uh, working on sampling improvements to support push two. So we needed a, an improved sampling workflow uh, for uh, like this, you know, this hardware machine where it, it had a very like um, sampling oriented uh, workflow, and then it's using live as the as the audio engine, uh, as the music engine, and so we, there were several uh, upgrades to the sampling uh, features that were needed. Then. Uh, well, we uh, worked on a bunch of different things uh, over over the years there, uh, and including the uh, wavetable synthesizer that came along a bit later. Uh, so I was on the uh, like the effort to build this flagship synthesizer, which was the first time that Ableton had done that for maybe ten over ten years, I think. Um, so that was a that was a, a really fun project, really like. Uh, quite a, a deep technical project as well as a deep product design project. So that was very interesting, I like build, helping the team to build that up over several years to get to the point where we had a, 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 like a, a product that we were uh, quite proud of at the end. Um, and then it, uh, in my role as a technical principal, like there was a, a need for um, oversight of the the way that uh, we were working on devices uh, and our DSP to make them uh, portable so that they could be taken outside of live. So now you see that in Note, so the, the app that uh, Ableton have released, so this is using um, newer uh, live devices or converted live devices so that they can be, so Note isn't using live as its engine, it's using its own thing and then, uh, but it is using uh, the same audio processing so that when you have uh, like uh, a set being loaded in live, then it sounds exactly the same and, and uh, figuring out how to achieve that was, was a big topic back then uh, as, as well. Okay, so uh, after so after some time at Ableton, you decided that you wanted to switch kind of your career path and become a freelancer. Uh, what made you make this de decision? I, it's it's a good question. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I it, I, th I think the the main thing that I was looking for was um, just a, a complete change from from what I had been doing. So it, it, like I said before, it was eight years that I, I did this like one job, one company, and and one kind of way of working, uh, one product line, and I wanted to just kind of branch out a bit, like try try a few different things, work for a few different companies, and it. It seemed like the the most efficient way to do that would be to, um, yeah, go freelance and, and get into consulting and, and work with uh, various people on a like as needed basis rather than um, you know being held on to as an employee. I could uh, just jump in and out and and help where I could and then uh, get out of the way when I was no longer useful. And I, I've I've found that uh, really enjoyable. Like I, I've I've in, found it very satisfying to just kind of like turn up and, and just try and be as useful as I can and then get out of the way as quickly as possible. Like I, I find that quite enjoyable. Um, also, I should mention around that time, I, 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 my, my wife and I were planning to have a kid. So I knew that 
um, probably in the near future, uh, a, a baby would be on the way. And for me, um, having the, the flexibility to choose my own hours while we were getting into building a, fa uh, building a family, <laughs> growing a family, I don't know, starting a family, <laughs> probably the best word. Uh, it, that seemed really like important to me. Like I, I, I kind of didn't, yeah, I don't know. Like it just, it seemed like if I was going to make a change like this, it would be uh, more uh, feasible pre-baby than post-baby because once you've had a baby, then it's like, well, I probably shouldn't let go of the security of having a job now. So I, I figured I, I should probably get rid of the security before having, it, and then then I'll try and make it work from there. Uh, and and that that has been good actually. I mean, it, it, it's it has been great to be able to say, okay, today I'm actually going to, you know, work a smaller number of hours just because uh, the, the needs of my family are going to take priority. And, um, and of course, like, you know, you can make that work, of course, absolutely with, with a, um, a full-time job, of course, but uh, for me, it just felt better to like get into this position before then. But yeah, it, it, so it was really those two things, just knowing that I wanted to have a big change and then also the timing of uh, making that change before uh, getting on with the uh, uh, the next phase of my, my life, I think. And then the pandemic hit. So <laughs> uh, ready with my home office, uh, like just as the uh, the pandemic was kicking off. So I was... Uh, or, already set up to be working anyway so it, it all felt quite natural <laughs> for me <laughs> okay but but uh, maybe this is a personal question but you still wanted to stay in berlin because uh, i know what's the accommodation situation in berlin and uh, you still not have, have not uh, considered and moving maybe outside of berlin or i don't know maybe back to uk uh not for now like we're we're, we're quite i mean it's a, it's a nice city to be in i, I like Berlin a lot, uh, it, it, less so when it starts getting really grey like it is now. Like it's a very uh, livable city. Uh, yeah, the accommodation situation is, is tough, but if, if you have a, an apartment, then it, it's, well, you, 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 you're less um, able to move freely. But um, yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's, yeah, it's very difficult for people who are moving to the city. I, I mean, I've seen this like several times now, people really struggling to, to find a place, but the good news is that once you have a place, then you're quite secure, um, which isn't the same in the UK, for example. So if I move back to the UK, I'm renting now. And if I move to the UK, I would, I would feel like I have to buy. And then that puts uh, a lot more pressure on the move. Whereas here, um, it, it, it's much easier to rent and, and feel safe. Um, so yeah, for now, uh, with, with a young family, it, it kind of it works quite well for us to be staying here also my wife was also working at ableton um and so she wasn't um leaving at that point she has since left but uh this came later and she had a, a well-established job and remote working wasn't a thing then um uh, not really anyway anyway okay. i'm rambling a bit so i'm a bit <laughs> can you feel free to edit answers down i'm i'm <laughs> Uh, not 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 being quite as concise as I would like, but yeah, <laughs> <laughs> basically I'm quite happy here. Not not planning to move anytime soon, but it, it, never say never. I, I I might well end up moving. I mean, th th to me, the, the family is the big draw. So we don't have um, extended family here. So we are taking several trips a year to the UK at the moment, and um, that that draw uh, does get quite strong. 
but yeah, you know, Brexit and all that. So I'm good. at the moment, I'm quite happy, quite happy where we are. Yeah, I definitely understand it. And thanks, thanks a lot for an honest, honest answer here. And uh, I think now there comes a question that uh, a lot of people in, the, in this field ask themselves. So how do you find uh, new clients to collaborate with and, and put your skills to the best use? Yeah, it, it again, it's, it, it's a good question. It, it's not, it, it, there's never like an obvious answer for this. Um, I, I feel like I've done okay, and I, uh, but I've also haven't been um, trying that hard <laughs> to say. Like I'm, uh, I, I've been in a fortunate position where I haven't felt. Um, uh, too much pressure to find new clients. So I, I, I've had um, word of mouth recommendations. Um, so people have been kind of sent my way. And uh, there have been enough interesting opportunities that have come up to keep me busy over the last few years. Um, word of mouth is one thing. Also, like the, so I, I've given some conference talks and then people hit me up off the, the back of those those conference talks. Um, and that's always good because you're, 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 presenting something that you know quite well and then people want to know more they get in touch with you and then uh, it's a natural subject to to use as the start of a, a conversation so that uh, if people are interested in getting into freelancing conference talks are a great way to um, establish your presence as knowledgeable on a particular subject I think if I if I was wanting to um, go further with freelancing and, and maximize my hours and, and maybe even grow a consultancy like you know I could start taking people on taking on more clients uh, then uh, like you know it, any kind of outreach to establish your presence surely is valuable so I, I would start a blog or a, a YouTube channel or a, or a podcast or something things that you're good idea <laughs> really make people aware of your existence uh, otherwise how are they ever going to uh, find you i mean of course you can find clients right but the the better situation is if they find you because uh, the 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 ball is already rolling if they're finding you they they know who you are they know what you can do and then you can start a conversation about uh, collaboration immediately whereas if you're on the other side of it, looking for clients that, and you're maybe like cold calling people saying, hey, do you need this kind of service? Then maybe you have to call a hundred people or 200 people before you even start a conversation. So yeah, if, if I was going further with freelancing, then yeah, it, I would be work, working harder to like make my presence uh, bigger on the internet, I, I guess I would say. Um, but yeah, it, so for me, it's, it's a case of um, like being selective about the clients that I work with and uh, ensure that uh, it's always kind of following a particular trend or a particular path. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of have a, a bit of a niche of, well, audio development is already a, a niche, um, high performance audio development. So in, in C++ or in, in Rust, which is my main language now, that's a, a niche inside a niche. <laughs> um, so it, then it, it wouldn't make sense for me to suddenly start becoming like a database consultant or something. It, 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 that would be a, a bit of a diversion, but it, like building a kind of small brand for yourself or like a 
following a path and then you start building connections within that path and you find actually there aren't many people in the world who can do specifically the thing that you're doing and and then that naturally will develop into further opportunities i think so okay nice yeah whatever that niche is but you know it, it it's it <laughs> software development's uh, quite a small world really like there aren't that many people who can do this and and when you if you can find a, a particular slice of this that, that's personal to you, then it's quite likely that you'll be able to find work within that that space. I would say. Yeah, I think it's a it's a very solid tip. Uh, it's it's always I think this challenge. So specialization versus generalization, uh, but uh, I think it clarifies then along the way. So you see. Also during work, you see what are the needs and uh, then it drives your next collaborations and so on. So uh, I, that's, a, that's, a, that's a really, really great tip. And uh, I, I think that uh, yeah, everyone should consider this. And it's on, on par also with what I heard from, from other freelancers that they also try to you know, attend conferences, put themselves out there and, and uh, somehow make it visible that uh, they are specialized in this particular area. So uh, before we jump into uh, your technology stack, I have one more question about uh, your uh, contract work, um, especially if you can answer this, because I, I've seen that you collaborated with uh, with Meta on this uh, haptics uh, technology. So I'm not sure if I understand it correctly, uh, could you maybe expand on this, how this uh, came about and what does it involve? Yeah, uh, well, to take a step back from Meta, the uh, starting point for this was a, a Berlin-based startup called Lofelt, who were interested in uh, advanced haptics and, and trying to push the state of the art uh, in haptics forward and, and bring um, you know, next generation haptics to a, a mainstream audience. They really wanted to, like... Uh, push the industry forward to caring about um, advanced haptics. And they, uh, around the time that I, I left Ableton, were um, considering switching to uh, using Rust for their, their core haptics engine. And, I, uh, and also they were looking to um, uh, continue work on their DSP stack uh, and so they brought me in as a consultant and I was able to help on the Rust side and also on the DSP side and um, help consult with uh, architectural choices in the in the haptics engine and also work on some analysis code for them and uh, it, it, it was quite a, a good client very very uh, an exciting startup to be working on uh, working with uh, and uh, it was a good time. So founded by an ex-Ableton uh, uh, and an ex, ex, some ex-NI people as well. And yeah, like at the start of last year, they ended up being acquired by Meta. So they had uh, built out a, um, a, a plugin for Unity, which made it easy to design haptic effects and then integrate them into, into games. And uh, this is called uh, nice, nice Vibrations. And eventually, yeah, they, Lofelt got acquired by Meta uh, uh, with an eye to um, improving uh, the haptic design workflow uh, for uh, Meta's hardware. So in re the Reality Labs division, they work on like the Oculus headsets. 
And um, uh, there they have the same problem that every company basically has with haptics, which is the, the, the APIs are underdeveloped, the design tools are underdeveloped, and uh, like it's all, always very, has always been very programmatic. So you type in a bunch of numbers and that makes the haptic go or and then it, it, there's no real thought going into, into the design process. So Lofa really cared about improving that. And then that caught the, uh, the eye of Meta and now they're at Meta uh, working on haptic design tools and uh, like SDKs for uh, integrating better haptics into um, games, applications, anything that uh, is going to be running on uh, their, uh, their their hardware. Uh, yeah, so I, I when they got acquired, I uh, went with them uh, as a consultant for um, a, a period of a few months and helped to uh, rewrite their uh, core haptics engine uh, with the knowledge that they gained from nice vibrations to uh, uh, better fit the the VR. Uh, space and uh, this was yeah like an interesting effort like, like all in rust uh, uh, which uh, was fairly new at meta and yeah now it's now it's shipping and uh, it's going to be using a bunch of games I think which is quite cool it's, it's, it's nice like it, it feels like it's actually um, being used which is cool um, yeah, and also, yeah, nice to be uh, able to work on that kind of like fairly involved uh, real-time engine in Rust. So it, a nice thing about Haptics is that it's very close uh, in terms of technology to audio. So it's a, a, a haptic, uh, an actuator, they call it, uh, is like very similar to a speaker. It's, it's basically a magnet that's shaking a weight around rather than a... Uh, pushing air with a coil, it's it's trying to like shake the device, but it's doing it at a frequency with an amplitude and over time modulating these properties. And so then you end up with um, uh, code that looks very much like audio processing code driving uh, uh, these these actuators. So building out the haptic engine was very similar to building out an audio engine, just at a, at a lower sampling rate, basically. Um, Okay, and, and did you also need to have the device? So with you, was it easier than if you could text, uh, test it, uh, you know, uh, in in real time, so to say? Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, nice. you'd have. So, uh, have you seen these VR headsets? It's like, uh, yeah, yeah. On, and then you got hmm? uh, things in your hand. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, you just have like these things sitting there, <laughs> like you, you type the code and then press run and then <laughs> see how it see how it buzzes and. <laughs> Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. You, no, you needed that. You needed the. Yeah, so I, I was surrounded by like VR stuff for a while. Uh, so that contract uh, ended um, June. So I haven't been doing that for a while now. But uh, yeah. Okay. And uh, any other uh, I don't know notable collaborations that you would like to to mention or like to share some some anecdotes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so there was a, a startup in Berlin that I worked with for a while called Pixtunes. They 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 they're no longer with us, unfortunately. But they, that was an interesting experience trying to build out an audio engine for them again in in Rust. It was a um, like a, an adaptive generative soundtrack uh, 
engine with the idea that it would generate music for everyday situations like uh, like walking down the streets or driving in your car or whatever and they had like grand ambitions to make this uh like a ubiquitous kind of new music format and and this kind of thing but, and uh it, it didn't work out but the it, technically it was a, a like a good project that uh, some uh, good engineers on the team and we were like thinking uh, a lot about how to put together like a, a fairly flexible, adaptive audio engine in Rust, which was like, yeah, we had a, we had a, a good time. It, it sadly didn't work out. But uh, anyway, another uh, client that I, it is worth mentioning, Super Hi-Fi, they're, they're uh, a, a, an American uh, radio technology company who are, are working on um, like audio processing uh tools, audio editing tools, AI tools uh, for radio broadcasters. Um, and they're using Rust as their core language for uh, pretty much everything, I think. And I've been working with them on DSP algorithms, like audio cleanup stuff and, uh, and other things. Um, uh, yeah, again, all in Rust. And what's nice there is that they're making use of um, open source crates or like packages in in, in Rust speak um, they, they call them crates they, that uh, yeah they, they're able to we've been able to make contributions back to these open source projects uh, through through um, their needs so they, they might find that an open source project kind of goes half halfway there and then we're able to like um, make some contributions and that that gets like upstreamed hopefully eventually you know <laughs> Um, so that that's been nice as well. That um, although the uh, the the Rust ecosystem is like not as uh, mature as the C plus plus ecosystem, it's uh, um, it's growing and, and getting better all the time. And uh, it's been uh, nice to be able to you know, work on a few things here and there. Okay, so uh, we're talking Rust, Rust, Rust. Uh, but I, as I understand, uh, when you started at, at Ableton, uh, you were writing everything in C++. So my question is, how did you discover Rust? And uh, what made you switch to Rust? Mostly because I understand it's your preferred language now yeah. from C++. Yeah, it, it, it definitely is my preferred language now. It, it's it's become quite clear. So when I, when I left Ableton, it was like, hey, it would be nice to... Uh, write some more Rust in the future, but it it I've uh, it's really basically my my daily language now, and and it's always the exception when I end up writing um, C or C plus plus now, which I'm very happy about. Like I uh, feel like it's a positive step for me in uh, my career, and I, I, I hope to spend the rest of my days not writing C plus <laughs> plus. So it's it it feels good at the moment. I mean, maybe something else will come along. A few years from now, and uh, that, uh, I'll be switching again, maybe. But uh, we'll see. If if it's Rust for the rest of my uh, working life, that's not so bad. Um, but yeah, I, I really uh, didn't see much of a future with me and C plus plus. I, I kind of <laughs> how can I put it? I dove it as into it as far as I could go, and then realized that I had to get out. It was uh, not going to be a viable way forward for me. <laughs> um, how can I, I, I don't know, it, it, here's the thing. I, I think it, it's okay for me to say that because I felt comfortable stepping away from um, 
like professional audio development, let's say. So I, I was doing this for a while at Ableton and it was my, my real passion. Like that's all I wanted to work on. And uh, if, if that was still the case, then probably I would be, you know, using Juice and C++ like everybody does. Um, and, and, and that's because it's a means to an end in the end. It's a tool for achieving a goal. And it, it makes perfect sense to use the thing that most pragmatically will get you to your goal. And uh, I completely understand that. Uh, uh, for me, though, it's... Uh, I, I got to the point where I felt like I, I could have a different goal and that would be okay. And I would enjoy using different tools <laughs> to achieve a different goal. <laughs> so I, I'm still working in, in audio area, audio related um, projects, but working on professional uh, like audio plugins right now isn't a goal for me. And so then I don't feel any pressure to uh, stick to using C++. Um, so I'm not sure if that answered your question or I, I again, might just be rambling here. I'm sorry. <laughs> so it, what made me switch? Well, yeah, really like the, knowing that there was a tool that suited me better and then having the freedom to switch is really the, like the core of it. But specifically what makes it a better tool for me than C++, uh, it's, so there, there are the, like, uh, well-publicized advantages in terms of uh, memory safety and thread safety. And in the end, these are the, the core achievements of, of Rust, that you, you get those properties uh, in a uh, language that is suitable for systems programming or for low-level audio programming uh, is quite unique. Like the, there isn't another language that's viable as a like a, a mainstream development uh, tool and that that may ch uh, may change but actually I, even in the languages that are, are coming up like so like zig for example looks very attractive from an ergonomics point of view like it offers a lot of advantages over c and there are some parts of the language that um, have advantages over over rust um, but without the, the core safety features, then you're left with uh, the same fundamental problem that uh, C and C++ have, which is that you have far too many ways uh, to shoot yourself in the foot. And this, um, I, I often, or I wouldn't take too seriously in the past, maybe let's say like, so, it's like, okay, there, there might be security issues, but you're making a, an audio plugin, so who cares, right? It is perhaps the attitude that a lot of people might have. Yeah, yeah I, I've, I've heard it personally, yeah. Right, it, it's maybe something that doesn't affect me. And I think that uh, that is simply, uh, what's it called? Uh, uh, security through obscurity, right? It's like that you, you, you're, you're in a niche industry, and so then you don't have to care about this stuff. And it's like, well, yeah, but how crashy are audio plugins like they they crash all the time and why are they crashing because of memory issues they're crashing because somebody is dereferencing a null pointer or a, a pointer that used to be not null but is now now invalid or it, there's a like a threading issue that's causing like the system to go haywire and these are uh, all issues that uh, 
Rust forces you to uh, think very carefully about and it offers you the tools to avoid uh, cases uh, like that from occurring. Which isn't to say that you uh, you can't write bugs in Rust code. Of course, you, you can write buggy code in Rust, uh, it, but they're logic issues rather than oh, no, that's not the 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 right kinds of bugs. Let's say they're they're because you've structured your programming correctly or, or you haven't thought through the data flow correctly, but you're not getting like oh crap, you've moved that value out so that no longer exists in that memory location, so that pointer is now gonna like tear down the application. I understand. So Rust, Rust, as I understand it, Rust gives you kind of good defaults, and you then yeah. then you need to work harder to make more obscure bugs than the other way around in C plus plus and C. It's it's quite easy to fall into a trap. Yes, and for me the okay. So the the good defaults are one thing. So yeah, const by default and like checked exceptions and it you know like we we. It, the, the Rust uh, error handling uh, uh, approach is is more akin to something like checked exceptions, and it, it's uh, it also offers ergonomic advantages. So you have like nice things like algebraic data types by uh, default. So std variant in C is is called an enum, and it's a core language feature rather than a library add-on. So then the whole language is built around this concept, and it becomes very natural to start writing all of your code around um, the, these uh, these enums which it, it it really like feels great to, to write code this way i really miss it when i when i don't I'm working in a language that doesn't have this so there, there's the ergonomic advantages as well as the like the the tooling advantages the fact that the, the community is standardized on package managers and, and linting and formatting and like all this kind of stuff that every time you start a c project you have like 10 different decisions you have to make about what tools you're going to use for which part, you know, like what, what documentation system you're going to use, what, t what testing system you're going to use. That all just is decided on and uh, there for you uh, from, from the very beginning. And then there's the day-to-day the -day overhead of dealing with a very complex language. C++ is a much harder language than Rust. It's I mean, Rust is not easy, um, but C++ is harder. <laughs> it, the, the, the mental overhead that I always would experience when working with C++ code is quite high, and it, it feels I feel much more like relaxed and happy writing uh, Rust code. Um, and I don't know. The, the thing is, this is like all, all quite personal, I think, and, and to taste, right? Like, so it's subjective and uh, in many... Some of these things I'm describing as subjective, like that, that I, I feel happier is like obviously very subjective. And somebody else could equally say the same thing about C++. They just hate the uh, the friction that the Rust compiler puts in your way and you just feel freer writing expressive C++ code, of course. Like they, that's totally true. Um, I, I just find from my perspective that uh, it, it's... Uh, more comfortable environment to be in when the things that are actually important are treated as important, that you uh, are forced to think carefully about uh, like memory access and, and thread access, and as particularly when you're working in a team. So the fact is you have something like a, uh, like a senior uh, engineer with a very sharp eye reviewing every line of code at compile time rather than you know, at, at pull request time, uh, you know, like you're, you're getting this immediate um, 
uh, nudge towards good architecture at every step of the way, which can feel quite daunting at first. But then uh, I'd say like if, if you're learning from scratch, then it won't be so daunting. It just becomes natural. They, where people often find a lot of friction is if they're coming from C++, then they're used to working in a certain way. And then they're going to like come up against um, barriers, which they have to figure out like, okay, what's the, the rusty way of doing this kind of pattern? They might find that actually there's, there's no equivalent and, and that you just have to think about your architecture differently. So that, that, that can be a, um, problematic for people getting into the language. But I still uh, would say uh, that I, I'm far enough in now that uh, it, I, it would be a strong recommendation to learn Rust before learning C++, just to like have a, an easier time in learning a complex, uh, how to write a complex system, uh, and then transition to C++ if needed. Um, and then you're, you're going to be writing better C++ than most C++ developers if, if, you, <laughs> if you have a good grounding in uh, good system design uh, that comes with. That's, that's what I wanted to ask you. So uh, did learning Rust changed the way you write C++ code now? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, back then, for sure, we're still writing C++. Um, <laughs> now, now that, I mean, I'm far enough out of it that the way I write C++ like, is like more like writing C, and then it's, uh, OK, I'll put a class in here. It's like I, I'm kind of okay. thinking about it quite differently now. Um, but back then, definitely. It, and I would say this is true for really like um, any kind of language that's outside of your usual day-to-day. -day. So it, um, it, it's really important, I think, to, to get a different, different perspective on, on what programming uh, can be or, or, or like the way that like different languages will encourage you to uh, mm -hmm. express a solution to a problem. Like uh, particularly if you haven't written in a functional language, it's well worth doing. Like just to try working through uh, like a, a, a decent sized project in 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 a, in a functional style will get you thinking <laughs> about like how you approach um, your 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 C plus plus solutions. I, yeah, it certainly it. Uh, how to put it with um, yeah it, in in C++ because you have uh, all power at all times then you're you're having to make very um, uh, careful choices and yeah I, I, I don't know I think you, you would be I would be over-documenting things that look kind of sketchy to me coming from Rust, where you know it, when you when you when you need to do something that's kind of foot gunny in Rust, you have to write it in a in an unsafe block. This is the mm -hmm. set of the language mm -hmm. where you you have the, the the safety mechanisms are for the most part turned off, and then you you can do whatever you like with pointers and 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 whatever else. Um, and and you 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 try to avoid this, and then if you have to write that kind of code, normally you're doing this within uh, a confined space, and, and you're building an abstraction around your core piece of unsafe logic. Um, 
And I think probably I would do the same thing in C++. It would be, okay, this is hairy. So this really deserves the reader's attention. And I'm mm -hmm. uh, like, pull this out. Okay, so this is a like a, a class which is supposed to be doing a, a fairly mundane thing, but actually there's this trickery inside it. And that trickery then deserves maybe more than just a comment that says, Oh, this bit, this bit of code is quite tricky. <laughs> it's like maybe it should be factored out and explicitly tested and documented. And I don't know. Maybe I would think about doing that kind of thing. Okay, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Like just trying to avoid it as much as I can. I don't need <laughs> it anymore. It's quite nice. Like I, I <laughs> there's, there's really nothing that I uh, now at this, this point where I would uh, think for a, a greenfield project uh, that the C would be the right choice. Like. Uh, and it's taken a while to get there, I think. So I, I think my recommendation, so five years ago, I, I, I spoke at ADC about Rust. Uh, and at that point, I was saying that I, I wouldn't recommend, like if I was starting an audio plugin company tomorrow, uh, the, the natural recommendation would be just use Juice and, and C++. And I don't think I would say that now. I, I think it would be much more, well, personally, I would definitely be using Rust. And then I would make the, investment in the in the frameworks or, or pushing forward the existing open source projects that are going in the right direction I would support them and and make them a core piece of the stack and um, uh, and I would feel very comfortable uh, doing that now um, but yeah a few years ago it wasn't quite that clear cut but now now is definitely a, it like for me a, a, like I, I would recommend it I, I it's it, it's really like if you have a very specific framework that you have to use that is a C plus plus framework, mm -hmm. then sure. But even then, personally, I would create a wrapper around that C plus plus framework and use Rust. <laughs> I would wrap it and then use Rust. I think really the only real <laughs> would be if if like you, your team is are established C plus plus developers and there's no interest in mm -hmm. retraining, then that that's a very valid pragmatic reason to be using C++, but uh, I personally would be not wanting to work in that team. <laughs> okay, I understand. And uh, since you mentioned uh, wrapping C++ around uh, or to, to talk to Rust, what what is the go-to way now to interrupt C++ and Rust? Uh, so if you're making use of a C++ or C library from Rust. There's a tool called BindGen, which will um, take care of um, generating the the stubs, like the the uh, FFI stubs, so foreign function interface stubs, for calling out to an external symbol. Like mm -hmm. the linker will find it in your in your C library or your C plus plus library, and um, what you then do is you you have uh, a crate which is your uh, FFI layer. So uh, typically it will be called um, I don't know, if your library is called foo, then it will be foo sys. Yeah, so for system, I guess, and then that will just be the generated wrapper code. The, the, mm. That's where all the unsafe stuff goes, or most of it, right? Like that. That's where it's the boundary between um, Rustland and whatever is on the other side. Mm. Then you'll create a, an ergonomic wrapper on top of that. So you you typically in, in your application code won't be calling that syscrate directly. You'll be doing it through uh, like a, a friendly mm -hmm. layer. And that's kind of a, an established practice that you'll see throughout the Rust ecosystem. There's tons of C++ and C libraries that are, are wrapped in that way. Then if you're uh, working on a Rust project and you want to make use of it from another language, then 
the standard approach would be to, uh, well, it was to use CBindGen. And uh, CBindGen is doing the opposite job of BindGen. So it's um, looking at the exported functions that are in your library, which are exposed to um, the outside world with C mm -hmm. uh, ABI linkage. Then it will generate a C header for you, or a C++ header from those Rust symbols. And then from your, your C++ application, you can call into uh, the, the Rust code as if it was I don't know, compiled with, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what language it was compiled in at that point because you have uh, a publicly declared interface uh, that's um, just using the, the, the C uh, ABI. Where that gets tricky is when you want to start um, generating bindings for more than one language. So if you uh, want uh, like to call from Python and also C Sharp or uh, Swift or Kotlin or you know whatever, mm -hmm. like there's a bunch of languages that people use to build applications with that uh, you maybe want to um, call into your core uh, core uh, logic that you've implemented in Rust. There it gets a bit fiddly because there isn't one ideal tool uh, for generating everything at once. Uh, but there is a new project that's uh, that Mozilla are working on called Unify. So it's Uni FFI. And there, they're really trying to solve this problem of multi-language binding generation. And, mm -hmm. it, and it looks very promising, and they, they seem to be quite happy about what they're, they're delivering, and it looks good. Uh, so the next time I'll, I'll be working on a project that needs to uh, make use of Rust from other languages, I'll be uh, looking at Unify for sure. It lo looks very promising. Yeah, definitely. I, I can imagine if you'd like to, for example, use Rust on Android, uh, and not use C++, then I guess you would need to call Rust from Kotlin or Java or that no, and for this, this would be very, uh, very useful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's right, and it, it works. Uh, I've, I've done this, and it, it works just fine. And actually, the yeah, it's um, it quite uh, yeah, it, it works very well. Uh, I don't know if there's actually more to say about it than that. It it's just the same as if you uh, you know had written it in any other language. Cool. I, I also need to try it out then. And uh, I think a very practical question is also, you touched on this a little bit, um, but you were already established, an established programmer in the C++ field. And uh, I'm very curious then, how did you, uh, or maybe if you can give, give a general tip, so how did you learn Rust uh, from scratch once you were already established because you you know you had your day job and then to learn a new language it does seem like a bit of an an effort yeah it's, it, it it is an effort um but it's um so I, what i'm trying to imagine is what's the situation where you simply can't learn a new language Having already learned a language, and <laughs> so it, and especially if you're if you've learned C plus plus, which you know is one of the hardest languages to learn, <laughs> then uh, it, what would put somebody in the mindset of assuming that they can't learn another language? Um, and it, okay, so it takes time, and so of course if you don't have time, then that's going to be difficult. But if you can carve out some learning time, and and most employers will offer something like this like you, you can e either you have like an agreed day or two or a week every 
half year or or something like usually you'll get some kind of freedom to just like mm -hmm. learn new things um and you you take that time and and it it's a question of prioritizing it right um also in germany they offer like occasional um educational leave so you can ask for like a week off every year i think it is to go on a course and you could probably use a an online uh, software course like and people maybe don't know that that exists and maybe it exists in your country and you don't know about it and it's worth looking into like what what um what's on offer for you as an employee uh, to take time to make sure that you your skills stay relevant that you have i mean even if you're not learning a whole new language and there's always tons of stuff that you have to learn in software development it's like endless like the the number of things that you learn and fortunately for me i really enjoy it like i really enjoy learning new things i, I i'm naturally quite curious i always want to like learn the new stuff and so i i, I enjoy that and that that maybe is why also it, like it's it doesn't seem daunting to me it's like a, a it's it's a great opportunity to learn something new it's it, it really really good fun i, I find um yeah it, like it's a luxury i guess to have the time to be able to do it given that there are people who don't have the time i i would just like uh if people are stuck in a situation where their employer is grinding them down and they've got no time to learn new skills then it's a something to talk to your employer about i think like it's really important to take time to continue your learning like throughout your career like a, a, a vital i think <laughs> like i mean it, it, it so you're involved in education do you find that this is a a, a challenge for people that, that they they're unable to uh, like find the time to learn new 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 technologies like, in their careers yes yes definitely because uh Mm, they have a day job, right? And uh, if it's, let's say, if it's a C++ job, then it's not so bad. But let's say you are a C-sharp developer, right? And uh, you would like to learn more audio programming. So you really need to get into a very different state of mind, uh, either to write C++ or, or Rust, for that matter. Because these are vastly different languages than, than C-sharp. And then you also need to learn about the, you know, signal processing stuff. And uh, in this aspect, the knowledge is quite scattered around the, the internet. So there is uh, not, you know, a single point point of reference. And, uh, but okay, also developer work is draining mentally. So it's eight hours of really thinking hard through problems. And put on, on top of this uh, a situation where you have a family, right? So you have let's say, a, a little kid or uh, maybe two kids. And then typically these people, they can, you know, learn only when the kids then went to sleep because obviously they, they need to spend time with their children. So this is, I would say, an issue of time and then an issue of energy. And uh, But I also recognize that there are some people who probably, like you, have this really strong drive, you know, to, to learn new stuff, to discover new stuff. And uh, can, you know, squeeze in this additional uh, time here and there to read something while they're, in, while they're, while they're commuting and maybe have uh, more like open mind to it. So I would say if you are a naturally curious and open person, then you will naturally find the time and energy to learn. Yeah. But if you 
if you don't like it, if you struggle, then it will be really, really hard. Yeah. I, 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 so yes, I, and I, I having a, I have a small kid myself, and I, I can sympathize uh, with with people who really struggle to to find time in their day, and, and energy is a huge issue, of course. Like I, I'm always tired. <laughs> it, this is a like a, a big challenge for sure. It, it, what can I say though? It's it's like hard things are hard, and and it, learning <laughs> learning a whole new technology stack and a whole new industry. Like if you're coming from maybe like C sharp uh, game development or something, and you're like audio development seems like fun, and like that's something I'd like to get into. It's like yes, it is fun, and you probably do want to get into it, and you're going to have to like find a way. Like it, I and it's it might mean asking for a sabbatical, like take it or a retreat, like ask your your family, can I just go off to a, a shack for a couple of weeks? I don't know. <laughs> like something has to happen. Like you, you can't just like <laughs> accept. I don't know. Like you can't just magic knowledge matrix style into your head. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Like it, it's. Um, I, I don't want to sound callous about it, but it's like a, a certain amount of realism is is necessary. It's like you you, you do have to think about like it, it, the the scale of the task. It. it uh, and and how to fit that in? It, it's it, like understanding that uh, it will take time. I think is important. Um, but then if you if you can figure out like a, a roadmap uh, for yourself, then then get on the right track. Then like then uh, it's it's highly rewarding. I think. Can I can I then add to this because yeah. now you have an opportunity to save other people time. And uh, by sharing, you know, what are the best resources, in your opinion, to learn Rust audio programming? Or uh, what are your tips or your method to learn a new programming language or a new piece of technology? Okay. Uh, okay. So for Rust specifically, there are some really fantastic learning resources for, for Rust. Just getting into the language and picking some simple projects that have nothing to do with audio, just solve some problems that you can find lots of coding challenges to on the internet, like small uh, tasks or like do advent of code. I really like uh, it, it. It's worth looking up if you haven't seen it before. It, like, lots of really fun challenges. In the old days, I would always go to Project Euler, which is still actually quite useful when you're learning a brand new language, like just, uh, just really like get to the nuts and bolts of how do I solve a problem in this language. But there's the Rust book. There's also this uh, interactive uh, learning uh, system. I think it's called Rustlings. Rustlings, I think it's called. And that's um, just a, a, a set of an interactive like command line game, basically, where you solve uh, Rust problems. It's, it's, mm -hmm. That's a, a good good tool to try out if, you, if you're brand new to Rust. And uh, there are also courses now that have been produced by... Um, like large organizations that are upskilling their uh, developers on Rust. So I, th I think it's the Android team uh, published a, okay. like a, quite an extensive like three-day boot camp they use for their, their, their trainings and they've published the materials. And, and there's it looks like a very well-structured um, entry point uh, for learning the language. Then for audio, <clears throat> the, there's the, the Rust Audio Discord is quite active. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, not really on there at all, but um, 
there, there are people on there who are, who are like online and all the time and, and ready to help. And there, there's lots of people like, answering questions there. And there's some fun projects to look at. The, the NIH plug project is a very promising uh, plugin uh, abstraction layer. So it kind of gives you the <clears throat> abstraction that you need for delivering like a VST plugin or like a, a whatever else. Uh, plugin, like all the, the different formats. And it's one of the, the big benefits of Juice, right? Like you, you write your code once and then it deploys everywhere. And, and NIH plug is a very promising looking uh, project for Rust. And it's worth looking at, uh, at that because then there's a bunch of fleshed out uh, audio processing plugins and they give you everything, right? Like that you need um, to see how a, a project like this is structured. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can see some DSP code, you can see some like framework code, you can see some GUI code, see what it all looks like and um, see how the pieces fit together. Um, are there any other, like, I, I think like that's already quite a lot to get through. Uh, mm -hmm. th those would be like the, the places I would go first. Like if I was like talking to a team now and it's like, how are we going to get going in, in Rust? It's really like check out the book and work through some problems, like take a few days and just sink into it and then uh, things will become clear, <laughs> I promise. <laughs> uh, these are very solid tips and I will also put the links to all the resources that you mentioned in the episode notes to, the, to this podcast. Yeah, cool. I, I could give you some more then for Rust. Uh, so this yeah. fun, fun DSP is worth looking at. That's a very nice <laughs> where somebody's put together a bunch of uh, like DSP algorithms wrapped in um, like modules that can be chained together very nicely. So that, like I gave a talk at ADC a few years ago about like uh, this kind of project. And there's been a few projects like this where mm -hmm. you have little processing nodes and you can express in code, this is my processing chain. And then it uses the type system to do fancy things. And uh, FunDSP is like the a nice expression of that kind of idea in Rust. And that's worth looking at. There's also the Symphonia crate, which uh, is doing a good job of uh, pulling together um, lots of readers for different audio formats, um, mm -hmm. all written in Rust. So it's dependency free, or at least, sorry, it's not like it's, it's free of C library dependencies, mm -hmm. put it mm -hmm. that way. Um, so if you want to get going with an audio uh, project, there's also CPAL, which is like the port audio equivalent, or I don't know what, okay. uh, RT audio or something. It, 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 it's that equivalent, but for Rust. So CPAL is the cross-platform audio layer, I think it is. And you can very quickly pull together a, like an audio app with those crates, I think. Nice. And uh, sorry if we're going too deep, but I'm, I'm super curious about this. Uh, what then, if you were to write a GUI application with Rust, uh, regardless of whether, whether it's for audio or not, then uh, which uh, framework or library would you choose? Well, it it depends. But, uh, right now, I'm quite. I've come around to the idea of using the the web uh, uh, view okay. as you mm -hmm. Um So there's an. A, a great uh, electron equivalent uh, in Rust called Tauri, uh, mm -hmm. like uh, T-A-U-R-I. And the main difference uh, to electron is that it uses the OS's native web view that comes bundled with every modern OS. So your mm -hmm. uh, generated uh, application bundle size is quite small, like very small. Like, you, like electron apps all have their own like 
embedded instance of Chromium and everything that goes with it. And uh, that's why they're, they're so like large on disk. Um, whereas it, Tari applications seem very lightweight. And uh, then if you combine that with a like a JavaScript uh, framework of your choice uh, on the on the front end, you have like like a very like powerful stack. Mm-hmm. For audio, uh, it's not clear to me that that's um, ideal yet. Mm-hmm. But I th- it, it doesn't seem to be a major use case that they're considering, like high throughput data coming from an audio backend into the UI. Um, uh, but I haven't experimented with this yet. It, I don't think there's an ideal solution for that yet. Mm-hmm. But, um, Slint is looking very promising. So Slint is a new UI project which uh, is being built by some ex-Qt um, developers. So Qt QML is, is a project that they worked on, and now they're building what they think is, uh, or they're, they're promising to be like a, a, a more lightweight, modern take on, on that kind of idea that you have mm-hmm. a, uh, a nice, simple, reactive scripting language uh, on top of a like a Rust backend, and they have audio as uh, as a focus. So they mm-hmm. they they they're working with a like, professional uh, audio technology company, and then they made an announcement recently. And this company is quite happy using um, Slint for for their UIs. So UI is still something that's emerging. I think it, like it's still getting there, um, but it 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 does seem to be like getting somewhere. <laughs> It, one of the big issues with UI in Rust is that uh, Rust it, it isn't very friendly to typical uh, OO uh, object-oriented um, patterns, and uh, like a lot of the major UI frameworks benefit quite strongly from like using uh, inheritance and uh, like uh, objects. And um, there have been a number of experiments over the years to try and figure out like what's the ideal way of writing UI code in Rust and mm-hmm. What seems to be like becoming quite popular, it, it is the like immediate mode um, declarative approach for UIs, where you just say this is the shape of the UI, and then you have like um, some hooks to say like, okay, if if I click on the button, then this event should happen. But that event goes back to the data model. Then you update your data model, and then the UI gets rebuilt. And that approach fits quite well with Rust, where um, like there's a very sp- a specific data flow. And this is actually a, a, like a, a type of um, uh, application architecture that I quite like. It's, uh, it goes back to uh, Elm, and then uh, Elm influenced like Redux. And uh, it, then this has influenced a bunch of mm-hmm. other frameworks. And in Rust, you now have Crates like Iced is one. It's quite popular. E E GUI is is like uh, quite a nice uh, immediate mode UI framework. And Vizia is one that's uh, being worked on at the moment, which again looks very promising. And they, they all seem to have the okay, a good idea of how UIs should look, but they're, they're still under development. So like the widget, mm-hmm. they're still like maybe they're missing some widgets that you might need, but at, at least. Um, they're making good progress. So then NIH plug, this uh, uh, plugin framework that I mentioned earlier, has kind of a UI agnostic approach to um, its um, architecture. So you can choose your UI framework to embed in your in your mm-hmm. plugin. And so then if you prefer using Iced or EGUI or some other uh, UI framework, then you have your plugin abstraction layer 
and then your UI of choice uh, that you combine together to uh, to make your plugin. And I, I quite like that. It's quite nice. Um, but I, I'm not sure that I'm fully sold on immediate mode UIs for audio development. But I think that there could still be somebody who figures this out and makes it uh, optimal. Because actually, if you do have a very reactive UI, like you have a lot of like modulated parameters and mm -hmm. audio meters and things, there is a lot of animation going on anyway. So actually, like refreshing your UI 60 times a second maybe isn't so bad anyway. Like it, it's uh, something that maybe people are overcautious about, I think. But I, I'm, I'm getting off track here, and this isn't something I've investigated properly recently. <laughs> I should stop talking about it. I think that there's, there's maybe potential for thinking a bit differently about UI here, and it's uh, still uh, being figured out. <laughs> okay, nice. But, but many thanks for your, for your detailed answer, because that's one of the topics that always uh, interests me, and I think this uh, NIH plug uh, framework is, is something worth looking at. Mm. And still regarding regarding uh, a little bit Rust related area, uh, I think you're also known quite well for inventing your own language, uh, Kodo. <laughs> well, I don't know about known. I, <laughs> it's uh, I, I, it's something that yeah you know, I haven't really like publicized it properly or anything. It's still very like in the kind of hobby project stage where it's basically just for me, but I've open sourced it and it's online um so if uh, if people want to take a look at it they're very welcome to it I, it's still at the stage where it's kind of there's going to be lots of changes while i'm still figuring out what what it should actually be but we're getting to the point now where uh, it seems fairly stable at least i haven't <laughs> planned any major changes recently so stable means that i i haven't changed it in <laughs> so um uh, but yeah, it started off as a uh, project that I uh, I took on because I wanted a, a large-ish project to 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 get my teeth into when I was uh, uh, like post Ableton, knowing that I wanted to do more with Rust, and my feeling was that I I, I just needed something like fairly sizable, mm -hmm. and also at that time, I had come to the conclusion that for um, rapid iteration of um, like, like feature logic, uh, working in a systems language isn't ideal for me. Uh, mm -hmm. I got interested in the idea of maybe like hot loading your code. Like you could do everything in Rust, but you just like find chunks of the application that can be uh, hot loaded, so you get rapid iteration through through mm -hmm. that, rather than having to wait for the whole application to rebuild and yada yada. And um, I figured that um, I missed having uh, like a Lua-like counterpart to uh, C plus plus, so you can build out a let's say, uh, like a, a, a game engine where you have your core engine written in C++ and then you have Lua as your scripting language. Or in Ableton Live, uh, C++ is the core engine language, but then you have a scripting layer um, exposed in Python. So you can do a bunch of like controller type stuff in Python. And I was kind of missing that for Rust. There are bindings for Python, Lua, and other languages in Rust, but I, I kind of saw uh, an opportunity for myself to kind of think, what do I actually want from a scripting language? And it seemed like a, 
like a fun project to get into. Like I would learn a bunch and, and yeah, it was good. It was good fun. So it's basically like a sabbatical project that turned into a pandemic project. <laughs> so like between like client hours, I would ha always have a thing to go back to, to work on. I would never be stuck for something to dig into. So it, was, it, it served that purpose for quite a long time. Uh, and now, what are we, we're like three three years into it. And uh, yeah, I had a kid along the way. So then it, it became a back burner project. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it works and it's, it's there. I, it, what I need to do now is just kind of put um, the final layer of polish on it so that uh, I can recommend to other people to check it out because so far I've been saying just don't use it <laughs> and that needs to change. I need to be able to say that it's actually worth looking at. It's really just for, so it, the purpose of it is for me is for um, like uh, working in a more creative context. So if you're um, working on like some, like an animation or, or a, a level for a game or something, then um, personally, I don't need a full-blown graphical editor for this, but I also find that uh, like the uh, complexity of a systems language gets in the way of um, working creatively. So I, it, 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 for me, was just an exercise in trying to find a minimal uh, scripting language that would suit me when I'm in a more creative mindset than uh, rather than like an engineering mindset. So it, it won't be to taste for a lot of people. A lot of people will look at it and think, I, I don't want to touch that. And that's that's fine. That's okay. It, it's more <laughs> um, for, you know, it, it, the other languages are available. <laughs> and uh, have you used this language professionally already? No, not in code that's uh, shipped, right? So I've used it for scripting uh, in my day job. Yeah, it, it's a tool that I reach for when I need scripting. Sure. Uh, cool. But mm -hmm. it, it's not something that's actually running any production code. Quite right, quite rightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's really cool that you were able to to kind of build up your own language that that aids you in in development. And yeah, no, it's nice. Like, I, 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 it, 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 I mean, it's more work than I would recommend anyone take on. But uh, it because it's, it's not like oh yeah, you can just write your own language, then you're fine. It's it's not. I, th I think a, a more sane approach maybe if that is your only purpose is uh, to write a transpiler for an existing language right so leverage the the javascript virtual machine or, or like or do a transpiler for lua or something because um, that's much more achievable and then you have a, a whole working um like uh, tool chain like that you can build on top of um but i had a slightly different purpose which was to also learn as i went and 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 just have something substantial to work on, which was its own goal, right? So, um, but yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. I really, I'm very very happy that uh, I have it. But yeah, it's been a ton of work. <laughs> nice, and uh, that nicely segues us to the next question, because uh, after watching a lot of your talks and also uh, seeing your output in in various places, to me you seem to be like a very structured and organized developer. And uh, I was curious to ask, how do you set up your workflow and how do you maintain these high energy levels? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so I, I'm definitely driven. I, I, I care a lot about coding, building things, I, 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 the, like making a thing and seeing the result at the end uh, drives me uh, like a lot, uh, and 
structured and organized to a degree. I, there, there is a lot of chaos in, in my uh, approach, um, certainly, but you know, uh, lots of notes is my big tip at the moment. Uh, so I, I spent a long time trying out different note-taking systems and productivity systems and, and different ways of organizing all of your thoughts and everything. And it, what I've come back to in the last year is just a big folder full of markdown files. And that's now everything for me. And it, it works very well, like uh, compared to, so I was all in on Notion for a while and I got really into it, but it, it, it compared to the speed that I have with just like, cause I've got my editor set up so I can quickly open like daily notes or my to-do list or different notes for different projects or, you know, whatever, like it's all just a file in a folder. So you do quick open and then you've got it. And if you want to search for something, you've got grep over your folder of text files and it's extremely fast. Whereas with Notion, you've got like to wait for their search backend to respond and maybe it doesn't. And so I, I got, uh, yeah, I, I came back to the, the idea of just keeping things very simple and lightweight and local and then it works and then it's reliable and, 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 and if, if people are interested in that, they should check out Obsidian. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, I don't know if you've heard of this. It's like a... Yeah, but it's Mac only, right? It's only on Mac. Really? Oh, okay. I well, think so, yeah. Yeah, but it, so what I'd say is that you don't need Obsidian. You just need a folder full of markdown files and then you're happy. You need an editor that knows how to open them quickly. You, you need mm -hmm. to be comfortable working with text files, but uh, as a programmer, typically you are. And then uh, it's just so easy and simple. You just save everything in like a Dropbox folder or, or a sync folder, like some cloud folder, and uh, you're good to go. Uh, and that's stuck really well for me uh, <laughs> in a way that no other um, system has. But yeah, like lots of notes, get everything out of your head, get it, write everything down. Like if, if you, your head's feeling uh, cluttered, then write everything down, right? Like it's the classic tip and it, it, it works for me. Like just do a massive brain dump, <laughs> get it all out. Because um, I, I, yeah, I, I can get quite um, overwhelmed with like, just because I'm drawn to new things and there, there, there is an infinity of new things. And uh, um, it, 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 it can be a lot. So I, I, I do have to um, put limits on it and, and make sure I have a structured to-do list and like everything gets written down. So like a few months later, maybe I'm interested in a topic again, I can go back to it and, you know. But yeah, I, to summarize, keep it simple. <laughs> make, make sure you can actually work with uh, everything that you're, note, you're noting down and you can go back to it and find it. Yeah, I'm also I'm also writing this down. Uh, maybe, maybe for myself, maybe for someone else. But uh, <laughs> sorry, following your tip already. <laughs> yeah, good. Uh, I, I, no, no, it, yeah, and, and then on the other side, like, yeah, I, I don't know if there's anything more to it. It's like in it, every day I I get to my my desk and. Um, Either I'm uh, I have something to do for a client, or uh, there's a long list of things that I would like to work on for myself, and um, there's always something to do, always something to learn, and and I I, I really enjoy it, and I, I think that's the the main thing that keeps me keeps me going. Like I find it worthwhile, rewarding, enjoyable, and if I didn't, I would find something else to do. <laughs> nice. That is that's really I think a beautiful place to be. And uh, when you are working, uh, what is then your go-to tech stack, if you could describe it? So 
maybe to, to simplify this, um, I know that you, you're using Rust and you're preferring Rust. Uh, what are other maybe tools for programming that you're using, an IDE, etc.? Yeah, uh, I'm using NeoVim, which is this fork of Vim that uh, uses Lua as its core configuration and scripting language rather than VimScript. Um, and that's got some nice momentum behind it. And um, then I've like built out like the ID features that I need uh, through plugins uh, in, in NeoVim. So what are the, what are the important things? So, like uh, LSP integration uh, is working very well. So you, and it works very well with Rust Analyzer, which is the, the main LSP provider for LSP server for, for Rust. Um, then, yeah, you, you use, uh, use Vim for debugging and for, well, pretty much everything now. Like, so I was using uh, Visual Studio Code for debugging for a while, but then that was the only thing I used it for. So then I figured, well, I, if I just use a debugger in NeoVim, then I won't ever need Visual Studio Code. So yeah, it's like really, it, it, Vim gives me everything I need now. And I'm very like, uh, command line based. So it, like, it, it feels very natural for me to just like quickly open a, like an editor in the command line and, and like everything just goes in there. And, and also if, if you are interested in getting deeper into like shell based development, then like get a, get a shell manager and like I use Tmux and to like quickly split different shells open. And then you can put like a command runner over here in this window and like run your unit tests in that window and then, you know, you got your code editor here, and then you can quickly like expand out that window so that all the all the distraction goes away, or then you can bring the distraction back when you actually need need it. Um, and I find this like much more um, streamlined than using a like a full blown graphical IDE because it, for me there's just too much going on on the screen. Like I get really distracted by all the flashy <laughs> lights and the pieces of text that are like being updated everywhere all the time. <laughs> like I find it really annoying. Um, so yeah, like minimizing uh, is quite a big deal for me. Um, but that means it's spending time on your own editor configuration, which like is not to everybody's taste. And some people would rather like, I don't know. It's another rabbit hole, right? That you can yeah. get stuck into. You can do, yeah. It, it, but there are also ready-made configurations, right? So you get like there are communities that that build out like here's an IDE ready to go. Just just do it our way. But then yeah, you're doing it their way. <laughs> I don't know. Like it, it is a rabbit hole. Uh, I, I I do find it important. I know that a lot of people hate it and would rather um, <laughs> do anything else than uh, configure their editor. But <laughs> to me, it's like the thing that I stare at for several hours a day, and it's like. Why? Why would I not want to have some agency over this? It's like it—it—it's your core interface to everything that you do, and then like not learning it properly, not having full, like full control. If you feel like it's getting in your way, then then it's like odd to me to not want to do something about that. And um, so I don't know. Like I, I actually um, find it quite important for my work to to really care about my editor, which sounds weird when I say it out loud, but. <laughs> It is true, nonetheless. It's like if you're a trucker, right, and you're sitting in your cab all day, you're going to care about having a good truck cab, and you're going to make it nice because <laughs> you're in it hours and hours a day. It's it's really important. Exactly, and if you're going to cut a tree, right, cut down a tree, then the first thing you need to do is you're going to sharpen your saw. 
So yeah. because with a dull saw, then it will take you hours of, of effort and, and frustration. Of course, yeah. Yeah, and, and you're going to go down a rabbit hole of like, who are the best saw manufacturers? And like, oh, oh I know this guy, like he makes his own custom saws. And so like, oh, well, alloys go into that. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, and now a fun question that uh, I'm always curious about when it comes to audio programmers. Then do you listen to music while programming? Yeah, I do. Do you? Uh, it depends. I try not to like in the morning when I really would like to focus, but that in the afternoon when I'm more tired, the music kind of wakes me up. Uh -huh. And you find it distracting in the morning? Like when, when you want to focus, it takes uh, your focus? It, it drains my mental energy in that sense. So I sometimes do it, but you know, I know it comes at a cost that I, my brain needs to fight this distraction that's coming from the speakers. Right. Yeah, I have that too with um, like vocal music. So if if, mm -hmm. uh, if there are any vocals, then I I'm completely distracted. Like my ear is totally drawn to a voice. Um, but for yeah, so it's certain kinds of music I'll I'll have on, and I I find it can help with flow for me to have music that's like I don't know. I don't I haven't thought of it as draining my. Uh, mental energy before. I've, I've certainly thought about it being a distraction, but not a drain. Um, but I'm going to think about that. Like, <laughs> I should just try a day without music and just see if, like, at the end of the day, I'm less tired or something. It might actually be a thing. I don't know. Like, so, but, but there's a lot of good, um, like, flowy, you know, kind of backgroundy kind of music that I'll, I'll put on. And techno is good for this, or certain kinds of techno. Like, if, if I really want to go, then I'll put on, like, the surgeon. It has quite a good taste in techno the dj is like he's worth checking out if you haven't heard him <laughs> that's good music to work to there's this guy called alexi perela who seems to put out an album a week of um like plinky plonky electronic music which all uses this um set of frequencies that they've come up with like, i think it's the kalundi scale or something i might have that wrong and <laughs> like the, the sequence and they're only allowed to use those frequencies and they they think they have like um like properties derived from nature or something it's a bit bonkers but the music is very good to work to and like there's an endless stream of it i think he like does a jam every day and like at the end of the week he's putting out an album it's <laughs> anyway it comes a lot up a lot in my spotify and it's it's good to work to it's like um yeah like somehow the frequencies are working well for my brain i don't know. <laughs> nice nice and uh speaking of, of other things that work good for the brain. Are you going to attend Audio Developer Conference 2023? Uh, no, so I went last year and uh, for the first time since 2018 and I, I, I really enjoyed it. But uh, for me, I, I'm, I'm in Berlin and then heading over to London. It, it, it's a, a few days out from family life that uh, is something I probably can't really justify every year. Plus, it's not cheap. It's like London's a very expensive city. So if I'm not doing a talk, then uh, it kind of it becomes harder to, ju to justify. So hopefully, I, I would start a campaign now for ADC to come to Berlin. <laughs> and then, then I'll definitely go. Um, but also, yeah, like, I don't know, I think maybe, maybe it's like every couple of years for me, like, I can't can't quite do it this year. Are you gonna go? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm going to go, and also I'm. I'm having a talk uh, myself. Uh, so yeah, I hope 
it'll be delivered delivered safely. And if you have a chance, then I also invite you to listen to it and and uh, yeah. But oh, well, please, please don't poke fun. Then <laughs> no, I really enjoyed your talk from last year. Like I, I found it really uh, like helpful. So like deep learning isn't something I've uh, dug into yet properly. Well, a, a little bit, but not really in anger. <laughs> so uh, I found your talk very uh, very inspiring. Like uh, I should really give it a go. Uh, yeah, it's a it's, it's a really deep rabbit hole. And knowing your curiosity, then I I, I can guarantee that you'll have uh, quite a big, bit bit of time spent there. Exactly. Like uh, I think that's why I've held off. It's like <laughs> that's all I'll be doing for a while, and <laughs> I've got other things on my on my plate at the moment. It's it actually though this year I saw um, there's a whole workshop on Rust Audio this year I think, and then mm -hmm. I think there's another talk as well. So it, it seems like there's uh, a good a good amount of rusty stuff this year, which is nice. But yeah, it's a shame to not be there to say hello to these people. But uh, you know, I, I'm sure we'll cross paths at some point. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to attend those actually, and uh, one of them is held by by Chase Kanipa. I don't know if you you know him, but I really enjoyed his talk from from last year. So I'm, I'm sure it's going to be great. Nice. Okay. Uh, thank you, Ian. Thank you so much for this interview, for sharing all your all your knowledge and experience. It's been incredibly helpful and inspiring uh, to me, and I'm sure to all the listeners as well. Oh. The last question <laughs> last question to you is then: If someone wanted to contact you, where do you recommend they go? Uh, so I've got a, a, a website at hobson.dev um, and then all, all it is at the moment is just links to other places, but that's where you can find uh, wherever I am. I used to recommend people go to Twitter, but like I'm hardly checking it now. It's gone a bit mad. So I, <laughs> at the moment, email might be the best bet. But uh, we'll yeah, hobson.dev is me. <laughs> Happy to talk to anyone who wants to uh, chat about this kind of stuff. Awesome. Thank you so much. And I wish you all the... Yeah. Sorry, I just talked. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, thank you very much for having me on. I, I really appreciate this. And I appreciate the work that you're doing to uh, help people get into audio programming. I think that this is something I wish uh, when I was starting out, there was more of. And uh, if I was starting out now, I'd be very grateful for the work that uh, you're doing. I really, uh, really find it a very good thing and happy to happy to be on. Thank you so much. And it means a lot coming from you. Then I wish you all the best for your future, and I hope we'll get a chance to meet someday uh, live this time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see you around. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. That was Ian Hobson, a freelance audio programmer who's in love with Rust. Thanks, Ian, for this interview. I highly appreciate your input. If you, dear listener, would like to check out the episode notes at thewolfsound.com slash talk016, there I listed all people, places, and references that we mentioned during this podcast episode. If you'd like to support the podcast, please give it a thumbs up and subscribe on YouTube. And you can also consider giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget about your free audio plugin developer checklist at thewolfsound.com slash checklist if you want to become an audio programmer. And I will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening and see you in the next one. Take care. <laughs>